let's push back there. Um, the amount of hatred that I see toward the GOP as just this generalized branch, just these people. Every, and everybody who voted for Trump or who was in the GOP party, it's like all conservatives, all evangelicals. And you know what? I, I've done this too. I'm sure we all have to a degree. We paint that big wide brush. And then, um, well, one, that's not fair, right? And there's just so many nuances within that. Two, so let's say let's say you, you have some validity to your argument. Great, whatever. Where's the love? Where is the loving of that adversarial enemy? I don't think we see it within liberal Christianity. I don't see it. I see people bashing the right all the time. There's no love. There's no. So there's some people who do a decent job. Uh, they're trying to build bridges, but we're just creating more of a chasm, I think. And, and this is more of a progressive podcast with a lot of people who come to the pub within all of our chapters who are, they probably lean a little bit more left. So if you were, if you were on the right, if you were evangelical, if you voted for Trump, would you show up at a table? You're no. welcome to. Yes, but what would, would you? I'm 100% sure we have people at Brew Theology in Denver that have voted for Trump. I'm pretty sure we have at least one. I'm just trying to, to uh, keep us real. His name might be Ryan Miller, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, think, now, I, I want to push back know. on what you said, though, because I think the call to... Yeah, this is, a, this is a rabbit trail, but it's a little bit of nuance. I think the call to, to love your enemy in the sense of engaging with maybe somebody who who voted for Trump or, I don't know, espouses. I'm not equating the two, but at this point, it's it's pretty much equal white supremacy and racism. I would not want a person of color to feel obligated to do so. Nope. I think it's the responsibility of white people to deal with white people. Um, I think we're, we're each of us responsible to each other. And I think the call is different for, for different people. You, you might well, disagree I, with that, but that's kind of my point. No, and, I, and I, I, can, I can speak to white people and I can say that white people are just as big of a dicks on the left as they are on the right at times. And ideologically, I am on the left, okay? And you guys know this. Eh. I, I vote that way. Ish. I, I, ish? Well, you can say, anyway, I don't have to defend myself to I'm you. Just playing with- I just <laughs> No, but like so, but 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 my 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 biggest beef right now with the left, and I know Nate, we've talked about this too, is that um, you're not going to win fighting the same old battles that you've been fighting for the past. How many years has it been now? No one's listening for one. Uh, two, um, you're using the same ammo that the right's using, and um, where. So to love your enemy doesn't mean that you have to let them in your house. We know this. It doesn't mean to expose them to your children or people that are oppressing friends of yours. You are to stand up for those who are oppressed. That's, that's part of it. But you're also to try to, to be a, um, somewhat of a bridge. You don't want to burn all your bridges. And I think that's in, in some ways, that's all that we know how to do these days. Everybody's just burning bridges left and right. So I'm going to go back to what Nate said. We don't love our enemies well. And again, I'm not saying that you invite them into your house. I mean, I think what, what we've called our enemy is like people who post memes we don't like on Facebook, right? Like the early Christians loved their enemies when they were actually killing them and, and hunting them and persecuting them. And I'm not saying we should make that easier and I'm not saying we should go back to that, but I'm saying like, I think that there's a radicalism. There's almost a sensation that because we're all so safe in America, we 
we shouldn't have to risk too much. Everyone should have the best of the best. There's nobody who should have to suffer and die. And I'm including myself in that message, right? Like I'm, I'm not really ready to suffer and die. I still feel like I'm just trying to get my feet underneath me, you know? And I think a lot of people are the same way. They want, they want to do what's right. And they also want to be able to have a life, like to live. But that's not a given. I mean, we know that, especially for our trans brothers and sisters that have just been denied service in our military, that is discrimination and it's disgusting. And our LGBTQ folks that are still fighting for equality in lots of different areas, including being able to stay employed in their jobs. Um, and people of color that, and women, I mean, I, there, there are a lot of people that it isn't a default that you're ever going to feel safe, that you're ever going to feel whole. Um, and that is the, I think a lot of times that's the ground of the privileged. And sometimes privilege just means white. It doesn't even mean that you have money. And so I think, I think that we do have to be careful how we talk about it because we, we can't assume that all Americans feel safe or that all Americans feel like they're going to get to that place. Um, and I don't think that's what you meant. Um, but I just think it's important to like, like just what a week or two ago, our government looked at trans people and said, you're not enough. And that's not true. I see you and you are whole and you are people and we love you. And that isn't the message that they get from our culture. And when, when we had a Ishmael on the podcast and hearing how, his daughters were asking him, you know, shortly after the 2016 election about their status in this country. He's Muslim, yeah. uh, immigrant from Germany, Turkish ancestry, and, and that uncertainty, you know, they, they speak English, have, he has good job, you know, the whole thing, the whole American package. Yeah. But he's Muslim. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely people that are, they're vilified in this country and don't have that same sense of security. Um, but yeah, I'd, we should have a whole podcast about loving your enemy, but we need more people of color in the conversation. I mean, I just would be curious how we would fully embody that, that holistic standing up for those who need, you know, who are oppressed downtrodden. I mean, Jesus says, blessed are all these kinds of people that, that were like, yes, you're our, you're, we, they should be our first neighbor, stand up against those who are doing the oppression, but then at the same time, like loving your enemy. That's a, that's a tough call. I I think that's, that is probably the hardest commandment that there is in the Bible. It is. Uh, But to do all of them, maybe that's when you need the body. That's when you need the actual literal body. Because sometimes I'm like, I can't do it all. I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to love this person over here. Why don't you go talk to the asshole on that side? Yeah. Teamwork, you know, tag, tag, you're it. Since we're talking about the wider culture, um, the the second question that I'd put in here was talking about what ways are, is our context. And this could be as, as, um, specific to literally your, the, the culture that you grew up in or your family all the way up to, you know, government or whatever has your context encourage or discourage embodiment and we've we've touched a little bit on it but i kind of want to suss it out it really doesn't because everything is so compartmentalized in the west 
you go to work, work out, hang out with your family, you go play on the weekend. It's all, and then you go to church on Sunday if you do that. If you don't do that, then you go to the mountains and you ski, you do your, your hobby or whatever that fills your cup. It's very, um, that's why people, people get burned out all the time. They, they leave jobs after a year, you know, five years max these days. So I don't think it encourages it in the West, but that could just be, that could just be me. I think like just to point at a couple of little things that are happening in like, let's say, uh, American office space is that there we're, we're, we're putting standing desks everywhere and we are trying to get people to realize that there's no moment in time in which they don't actually have a body, right? That you have to, that you can't take care of your body for 30 minutes a day. You have to take care of your body all the time because you are your body and you're living in it. Like we, I mean, there's very much a, a, a capitalist assumption that you can like subjugate your body to the needs of your, your job. Okay. This gets so complex so fast, like, because the Amazon warehouse worker is using their body all day long to the point of torture and pain and physical damage. And nobody gives a fuck. And then you have a standing desk in your corporate job while you're writing code and staying active and trying to, and, and also actually writing code is really interesting because I, this, I just learned about this maybe a few months ago and I've been thinking about it a lot, which is that writing code, it, it encourages for, especially for someone who's already a head on a stick. Yeah. It encourages a mode of thinking, which is that all problems can be, can solved, be solved with abstraction, yep. right? And all data is either this or that and everything can be quantified. So um, I'm a, well, never mind about that. But the point is, I've been trying to un, like unlearn what I have learned, right? <laughs> to bring uh, Yoda into, into the mix that that's how I saw the whole world for a long time right. was that problems can, all you have to do in order to solve problems is quantify them correctly. Right. And then arrange your abstractions in the right way. And then that's, that's how you solve problems, but that's not actually what the world is like outside of, outside of a computer programmer's mind. Well, and I think women feel this too. Um, I would say our context discourages embodiment in many ways for women in particular, because you're constantly barraged with perfect looking women, airbrushed women, the next diet, the next exercise, the next elastic thing to wear. Um, I mean, it's, you can't really go anywhere and not notice it. Um, and as a plus size woman who has to go shopping up by Boulder, which is a really skinny town, um, you know, going into the woman's section is one, you have to find it. And if you can find it, your selection is very low and everybody's watching. At least that's what I've been told to feel like. Um, so I'm not here to argue like health aspects. I'm just saying it's, it wouldn't matter. Even if I could get down to a size two, it wouldn't be the right looking size two because I'd have extra skin. Like there's no point for many women, not all, but for many women where you are not allowed to be okay in the body that you have in this moment. And that's 
think that adds an extra layer to some of this. And I don't know, men, do you feel that way? I'm honest. Yes, you do. Yeah. But my first thought was like, no, fine. We can be whatever body we want to be, but now we're, we're also bombarded with certain ideals. I don't think it's the same. I don't think it's, well, I, I can't speak to you, you guys, but I don't think it's even close to the same. I, I think you're right. It's, it's not the same. And I think also women have to be, for obvious reasons, women have to be aware of their bodies All as the something that they live in much younger than men do, right? Men get to continue to be Peter Pan for a lot longer than women do. They get to continue to sort of pretend that the things that they do, especially if you're you're blessed with a, a reasonable metabolism and blah, 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 right? It might be another, you, you could spend another 10 or 15 years mm-hmm. beyond the point when a woman has to be aware of her body as a body uh, for a man. And then a lot of the consequences in the world are set up to favor you, right? Like um, in terms of things like if a young man and a young woman create an unfortunate situation and, there, and there's a baby involved, well, a lot of that responsibility for making decisions and what's going to happen is on the woman yep. and the man, you know, may or may not be around to be interested in those types of things. So yep. that's, that's her problem, right? She's the one who's embodied. I'm going to just keep going yeah. on with my life. Yeah. It's complicated. I'm currently reading a book by a indigenous woman. She's Potawatomi. Um, and it's called braiding sweetgrass. It's really good. Really it's on my shelf. Really, really good. You need to hop on that. Okay. <laughs> I'm I'll like, move it up the I'm, stack. Not, I'm not even like 10% through and it's just really good. And she talks about, she kind of contrasts her, her culture and, and the Western culture in, in general. And, um, one striking thing was how she describes uh, indigenous culture as a gift economy versus uh, the Western commodity economy. Everything's a commodity. Everything can be bought, sold, whatever, everything. Um, whereas, at least in her Potawatomi context, um, it was this gift mindset that the earth uh, provides gifts Mm-hmm. And maybe humans cultivate it. And then when, when you give it to someone, it's also just passing the gift along. And she also mm-hmm. talks about how historically the, the difference in maybe how Dr. Tink Tinker would put it, worldview, the differences in worldview, um, created a mess at the outset when it came to land. You know, this idea of gift, you know, the, the land's fruits and the land itself is a gift that we share versus uh, what part of this do I own? Which part of this is mine? And she also talked about how we typically see ourselves as individuals. Um, and even, obviously, they have individuality within indig- indigenous cultures, but they see it, their individuality is bundled up. So let's say their bodies are bundled with a set of responsibilities mm-hmm. rather than a set of rights. Yep. So in this country... Everybody has a set of rights. And as we know with our transgender folk, those rights may be different depending on what body you inhabit. Yep. And that's how it's been historically in this, in this country. But in the indigenous worldview, it's 
we have a embodied responsibility to one another, to the earth. And that was so helpful just reading that. I was like <laughs> hearing it on the way here, not reading it. So Yeah, especially um, when I was at Parliament listening to them talk about the earth, it is... It is a character in the story. It is is someone they interact with and someone they're responsible to, especially the women take care of Mother Earth and respond to her and watch her. And I mean, it was just, it was so moving to hear how not only is that something that happens here in North America, in Turtle Island, but it's something that's happening all around the globe in all ind indigenous traditions, that this communication and this... Um, acceptance of the gift of Mother Earth and and the the sharing of that ha happens all around us, and it's a different way of living. It's a different way of being grounded, of being embodied. When your embodiment is connected directly to the ground that you're standing on, um, yeah, I found it really. I haven't read that yet, but I that experience that I had really has caused me to think more about that. Dan, earlier you had mentioned contemplative practices that you engaged in years ago. Not sure if you still do, but I'm I'm curious for the rest of you. Do you have experiences, practices that that do bring you back to your body that you have to do, otherwise you would be disembodied? Well, I mentioned that uh, I've been going to therapy and talking about this kind of stuff, and one of the things that my therapist will do is, and he's he's kind of a he's a he, well. He's like me. He's got a, a real strong penchant for abstraction, but he's gone through this um, this process already. And so he'll ask me a question. He'll say, how did such and such make you feel? And I'll, I'll give him the output of like 20 hours that I've spent thinking about such and such a thing, right? And he'll, you know, he'll listen patiently, and then he'll say, what I mean is, how did you feel it? Like, where was where it? Where in your body? Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't pay attention to any of that shit. <laughs> Right. You will now. <laughs> and, and your therapist is like, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. My head hurts right now. Thanks for asking the question. <laughs> yeah. So I've been paying more attention to that as I go through things and also trying to think back on experiences that I've had, which I've converted into mental processes, but going back and, and trying to say like, all right, I think I remember that I felt my heart clamp when that happened or i felt i felt my face flush and i felt my head like felt like it was going to explode you know those types of things they're they're so much more real than i want to give them credit for and i mean without turning this into a personal therapy session like essentially a lot of what i'm doing is pretending like i'm not feeling things that i am feeling because Either I don't want to give some person power over me, like I don't. I want to pretend like, oh, that that person couldn't make me sad. That would be silly. So, therefore, I'd, I'd be I'm not foolish sad. for them. That that's how I feel too. Exactly. Is, uh, I've yeah, I have a lot of work to do. But <laughs> part of my thing is like there'll be small things that just make me feel a certain way, and then I I'm up, I'm angry or upset that why would something so small affect me. And that just kind of makes me further um, disengage from my body because I don't want to feel that way because I, mm -hmm. I shouldn't be. That's petty, you know? Yeah. So I feel you. Instead of being able to say, like, I'm feeling this thing and that's fine. Like, it's so hard for me to just say that, right? Like, oh, I felt this. I felt 
Like I wanted to stomp that guy's head into a curb for a second. That seems really wrong. So therefore I couldn't have felt it, but well, actually I did feel it. So. I think this is one of the ways our context makes men feel disembodied is that you, that men are trained to not feel, or maybe you're not trained to not feel, but not to acknowledge the feeling. Is, is that kind of fair? I think that's, um, that is wildly dependent on the man. Depends like, on the con- like, I think what you're talking about is men not being, it, it not being okay for men to acknowledge certain kinds of emotions, right? Okay. Yeah. I think that's, that that's a broad category that fits in what we're saying, but there's a lot of ways in which that manifests itself. Yeah. And for me personally, like, it's so funny because I did before, before last year, what was that 20? So 2017, I made my meditated nearly every day. That was like my, my goal. And it did make me more grounded and, and aware of my body. But in my head, I still had these old mental loops mm-hmm. and thought patterns of, you know, I knew the theory and I was even trying to do it with my body of, I feel anger arising. Let's just observe it and, and not judge it. You know, it's okay to be angry about the situation and, and it'll pass. But man, there was always that little mental loop going on of like, no, anger is bad. Why are you feeling angry? You're a Christian. You shouldn't be angry. You're this. You've meditated for half a year. You shouldn't be angry. You should be enlightened. You know, like the whole, the All whole thing. It. And that would just piss me off more. <laughs> even, a, even a prideful feeling of like, I'm in control of how I feel. And that, that means that I couldn't feel something which I wouldn't have chosen for myself to feel, right? Like I couldn't be having a reaction that I don't want to have. But I think there's, there's another element that you're hinting at, which is that we can't feel certain kinds of emotions right. which are not acceptable for men in general to feel. Like we can't feel weakness. We can't feel vulnerable. Those are different. Yeah. I, I, I'm also prey to those but for different reasons, like that's, that's a more, that's a more general, uh, general thing, which is like, you know, that, that, that idea of toxic masculinity, that you can't be certain types of things because they're weak or they're feminine. That's different from what, from this specific uh, problem, which is I don't want to admit that I have a body in a lot of ways. You want to be a floating head. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's the ideal. It's easier. Yeah. Um, back to the question of, uh, you know, practices that help us come back to our bodies. It's going to sound super cliche, but um, having a daughter and, and being present with her, you know, she's like six, seven months, she's going to be seven months next week. So um, she, I know, seven months. She's so cute. Yeah, she is. Um, just seeing her play and playing with her and engaging in her world helps me come back to my body and um, my inner child, which I've completely neglected, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and and I think that's, I don't know, there's got to be some psychology on this, but maybe that's part of coming back to our bodies is coming back to some inner child or something yeah. like that. Um, but... Apart from that, anything where I use my body, like going on walks or just any, anything like that, like where I'm using large muscle groups of my body, I can't be doing small things because technically just being, you're using your body, right? Just 
being alive and breathing and stuff that that's helpful. Like breathing exercises, um, certain types of meditation. But I think when I use large muscle groups where, where I'm forced to pay attention to my body, I think that's most helpful for, for me. It's funny. You'd, you'd mention your, your baby and people often will talk about like infants, kids, and then the elderly of getting them back in touch with their, their true selves. And yet, so when you're, when you're little, you you don't have control over your body. Mm-hmm. When you're old, you don't have control of your body. Whereas right now, like we don't think about our bodies at all. Like Nate was saying earlier, you're like this floating head. And, um, and when you do, when you do bring up your body, you, you ah, I'm going to, you know, it's either shame or guilt or it's weird, but kids are trying to develop their bodies and old people are like, their bodies are dying. Maybe we should be around children and old people. That's what I yeah. mean. <laughs> I have one more that's actually a not so positive and, and kind of a negative. It's not a practice. It's just something that's happened to my body that brings me back to my body. Last year, I dislocated my shoulder Ow. very badly, and it was out for two hours. So it did some good damage. So anytime I have pain in my body, it brings me back to my body. Like I can't, I never noticed my shoulder. I never cared about my shoulder. And I feel like I, I want to make space for, um, you know, there's people that suffer from chronic pain that they're very much aware of their body because they're always in And they pain. want to get out of their body. Yeah. So with chronic pain, sometimes you learn to ignore it. And, yeah. it, gets, and it gets hard to recognize when something else is wrong. Which then brings us to, if I can, psychosomatic, which is, well... It's, it's the mind and the body, and we, we poo on this in the West. We do it in the church, too. Like, oh, that's not a real thing, but it is. I mean, and whether we—I don't know about you guys. Like, I personally—mine's not a big deal. I get—my I get, left eye twitches a lot when I get stressed. It's a weird, it's a weird thing, or a lack of sleep. And, um, but we don't, we don't ever think about how the body and the mind and the spirit, if you want to say that they're all in existence, whatever you want to call those things, but they affect each other. Mm-hmm. And— in the West, we do a really bad job of, of realizing the integration of all, whether three, whether it's three or four. You want to throw the soul in there too? I don't know. Do what you want. Body, mind, spirit, soul. That's kind of what we've been talking about the whole time. I would argue that you know a lot of the feelings and the, even the thoughts that we have, and that's what makes it a little controversial, they kind of emerge or start in the body. Whereas maybe we've thought about it the other way, that the, the brain or the mind, typically people equate those two that the brain is the mind. That's the, the one in the driver's seat. So one of the things that I do to get myself back to the body that I don't do nearly as much as I should is I love to go on walks. I mean, this is going to sound so lame, but like, so my, my prayer. See, but uh, let's stop right there. Yeah. yeah. You and I both did the same thing, and I just realized we're just, we're already dismissing yeah. ahead of time before we're sharing our experience. I know it's horrible. It's bad, it but is. I just I just realized that right now. Yeah. Well, for a, for a you know a male a Western male to say, oh, I go on walks. I mean, that's honestly my best thoughts, my prayer time. Uh, when Lord and I go on walks together, any, whether I'm going with my kids, all the sometimes when you go with your kids, if you go with a toddler, it's not so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean actually, I'm with you because I started to feel more grounded in my body when I got a dog. And he needed long walks every day. And I, I got him so that I would go outside and do more things like just on a regular basis. But a dog doesn't have the option of, of detaching from his body, right? He wants you to pet him. <laughs> he wants you to take him on walks. 
have to pick up his poop. <laughs> like it's a very embodied experience to have a dog. And, uh, and that was really good for me actually. I think it's Thich Nhat Hanh often talks about you got to go outside every day and you got to be quiet every day. We, we don't do those two things well. Mm-hmm. We're stuck in an office or a house and we talk. And even, if we, even if we're silent, we're still talking. You know, like the mind does it not still stop. Goes. Yeah, yeah walks, walks are so good, so therapeutic. What about you, Janelle? Um, the recent one that was actually a totally random find. I've been dealing with some anxiety this fall. And I was talking to a friend about it, and he said, why don't you do vocal exercises? Well, I've been singing since I was a child. I started being part of a number one ranked national choir in sixth grade. And so vocal exercises are easy, and they're ingrained. And I can do them without making a lot of noise, but it engages all of those systems and pulls me back into that space. Um, so that was that was a good thing to stumble upon. Um, my other friend recommended doing, if you're really feeling overwhelmed and disconnected, do the hokey pokey because, or, or yeah, just because it makes you re-engage with your limbs and your body and know where you are. A lot of therapists recommend like crossing your arms and your legs in different directions and feeling both sides of your body. Um, and so sometimes those things can pull you back to ground. My biggest problem is I can't remember to do them. Like I just, I you don't. You should set a reminder on your phone. Or I something. don't get in the habit. Like, like I'm going to text you every morning at seven a.m. Hokey pokey. <laughs> One of when you were talking about psychosomatic, um, I was think. Uh, I don't think the word has anything to do with this, but you just took me to a, a sort of um, therapeutic place and. One of the ways, so this is what I find really fascinating about being a head on a stick is that one of the ways that you get your way out of being a head on a stick is by finding concepts that show you the limitations of being a head on a stick. And I think a lot of people experience that, like, I don't remember who it was. Uh, who's the who's the girl that came out of Mormonism? Is it, it's not Rachel Held Evans, is it? Um one of the, anyway, so the girl who came out of Mormonism and is pretty popular now, she was on uh, Joe Rogan and uh, the Bible for Normal People, and she talks about how the, the way that she came out was that people showed her the inconsistencies in her own belief system. And I feel like that's what leads a lot of people out of these, these little contained worlds that they're in. For me, um, a couple of Jungian ideas were really helpful in breaking out of being a head on a stick. One of them was this idea of the shadow, right? So learning, like seeing that me turning away from my body every time it tried to tell me something, that I was putting all that information into my shadow. I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to acknowledge it. I didn't want to know that it was me. And another idea that I found really powerful was this idea of, uh, you know, Jung has all these archetypes, right? So he talks about the sky father and the sky mother and the earth father and the earth mother and how in a lot of practice of Christianity, we only see God as the sky father, but Christ is in all things. That means he's in the dirt and he's in my hat and he's in my scotch, right? He's in all of the physical. He is physical. in your scotch. <laughs> it's the spirit after all. That's right. Um, so, so he's uh, so he's also in everything physical, right? And if I don't see that, if I don't see that there's 
that I don't have to put God into a place where everything is perfect in some abstract way, but that God is in everything which is real and physical and tangible in my life. If I, if I, if my practice of my faith doesn't incorporate that, then I'm losing something. Yeah, let's continue this and then end on that note where we talk about the divine transcendence and all that. So this is your last question here. What does embodiment, as you had already started to say, have to do with God, the divine, or transcendence? I'll go first since that's I have the least interesting thing to say, which is just that what I've been trying to learn to do is, is not to ignore any part of my experience, but to understand... Like, without being able to put a label on it and say, God wants me to get this from this experience, to, like, accept a mystery that I don't know why it's happening, and I don't have to know. I can experience it and be grateful for it. And, you know, maybe in five years or ten years, I'll have some better way to articulate what it meant to me so much of it is just going to go by. And if I am only allowing myself to say, oh, this came from God or that came from God, then I'm missing out on what's actually happening in my own life. And um, so I'm trying to be more grateful for each thing that's happening without assigning it any like particular value or, or, or meaning or what I'm going to do with it to just really be alive to it. And I feel like it's really deepened my experience of what's happening. And I hope to be able to continue that process. I think one way, one, which this doesn't apply much anymore, but one thing that happened to me is I used to always take notes during sermons and I'm a note taker. I do that all the time. You can find my batch of conference notebooks on my bookshelf at home. But at some point, I mean, I think it falls into this question, and I stopped taking notes and just listened. Um, and so, of course, I might pull out something and notate something really meaningful or something like that. But to just have written the whole thing out, it got to a point where I didn't need to do that anymore and just being present with it. And maybe I would forget it all. And maybe, you know, I don't know. I mean, one of the most memorable ones recently was uh, my friend Josh was preaching on the mustard seed, which was something I got obsessed about when I was a teenager and I had the necklace and I probably had a bracelet. And, um, but he was talking about how when it says the mustard seed grows into what it is, that that's, that's all that's expected of us, that we grow into what we are. And so I have this little bowl of mustard seeds that sits by my coffee maker that I can interact with in the morning to help kind of remind me that all I need to be is what I'm growing into. Um, and that came out of a sermon where I wasn't taking notes. I wasn't dissecting it. It was exactly what you said. It was something that captured me in that moment. And three years later, I'm still, it still captures my imagination um, to just stop trying to be this certain thing and just be right now. I found that um, being more in tune with my body and as a result to the bodies around me, human and non-human, 
I think I've found um, who I can't remember who it is. Philip Clayton probably probably quote said this intonations of the divine is how he would described it. They're just these little flickers. That flickering uh, metaphor also came from uh, Padilla. What was her first name? She was at the Open and Relational Theologies. Not Donna Bowman, not Nancy, the other woman. Um, Elaine? Elaine, Elaine Padilla. She talked about, about the divine as a flicker rather than a flame. And I think that's been my experience. And just taking things in for what they are and not, not clinging to anything. Um, and really paying attention to the things that make me feel most alive, most connected to everything. Those, uh, and I'm just like, my brain's just going and connecting all these things. The awe episode with uh, Rabbi Stephen Booth Nadav, you know, paying attention. For me, it's always the geese. I, I live in a rural town where there's just geese flying overhead all the time. But every time I hear them, I pay attention, I look up, and I smile. There are other times that they're flying over the sunset, and it just fills me up. Um, th- there's just so many things, little things like that, that if I didn't pay attention, it wouldn't matter. And I'd miss out on that, that experience. Years ago, somebody had started to really test me on, on my theology, and not so much in a cerebral way, but more of a, a uh, what does God taste like? What does God smell like? So the sensory element of God, because in the, of course, in the Jewish world, Eastern world, God is not something that you can can describe in a bullet point, or a uh, you know. I mean, let me give you a description of my God in this little great thesis, this paper that I wrote in seminary. It's awesome that totally. I wrote that I wrote in a cave on my laptop where I was hunched over. Like no, like you go at this goes back to walking. You experience God. And that sounds so cliche, and so there's books about this, but I, I don't think we really understand that, like, no, the this goes back to the flicker thing that you were saying, Dan, and then the Elaine had noted. What does God smell like? What does God taste like? And so I, I used to always, you know, use honey. Gin. Somebody had, no, somebody had, I was talking to youth back in the day, gin, okay, I couldn't sorry. use gin. Uh, of course, when I got my youth workers, the volunteers on the side, I'm like, hey, God tastes pretty hoppy, right? Smells pretty piney, resiny. Um, but yeah, with youth, you say God tastes like honey, you know, and, 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 and the word of God is sweet like honey. So things like that that just are lost, they're lost on people. And it's weird. Like, what do you mean God tastes like honey? Changes the way you think about life and I think about God. And so if there is a, and that makes it more connected. I think we so want to make the transcendent leap. So we want to talk about God as the holy other. And that's okay if that works for you, but eventually it has to be experienced. So God must taste, God must smell. And I'm not saying that I've got that down. I'm saying that helped me years ago, and I'm reminded right now as I'm speaking for that to help me tomorrow when I wake up. Coffee. Coffee. <sighs> come on, come on, God. Right there should remind me mm-hmm. of the divine. When my kid starts laughing... The divine. You guys know who says this? Um, I can't remember. You don't see God because you don't look low enough. Don't know I can't one. remember who says that, but I've been thinking about that a lot. Like you're looking for God in in a a very high, far away, abstract way, and you're missing him because he's right in front of you. And I don't mean that in like a trivial way. Like 
like, oh, God is the smell of coffee. I just mean that, like, to see God in every moment of your experience and to be grateful for every moment of your experience. And it also seems to be in the in unlikely places. And you see that throughout all of Scripture, and we still don't freaking get it. Mm-mm. I still don't get it. I, the, the, the latest one, there was a, a woman on social media, and I can't remember her name. She's not, I think she's just a theology student, not famous or doesn't have a book out or anything. I wish I could give her credit, but um, thoughts not my own. But she, she, she pointed out that in, I can't remember where, I don't know if it's an, I think it's an Acts, that Paul has this vision of the man in Macedonia mm-hmm. calling him to come to Macedonia. Well, if you follow the narrative, he gets there, and who's waiting for him? Women. So if that's not, if that's not a flip, if that's not a surprise, then I don't know what is. Yeah. And, and if we expect to find God up in the sky, in our churches, even in our coffee, um, God might be elsewhere. I'm, not that God isn't in those places, but where do we think that God isn't? Maybe that's where God is. That was fun. It's always great to Ooh. brew and to do it in a... Well, th- thank you guys for coming to my house, to my home with my family. And I think that that's what's kind of cool about it is that I like doing the podcast because it, it, it brings a smaller part of the brew theology community into, into my personal home. And my kids are... You know, it's funny. They, they like whoever comes in the door <laughs> and you know you guys entertain them. So appreciate that. Juice is adorable. Caroline's brilliant. Thank you all for listening. If you would do us a big favor, go on iTunes, rate it, review it, share it online. We are at Brew Theology, Facebook and Instagram, Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. All things on the website, brewtheology.org. Thanks again. Cheers. 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 Bye.